Have you ever heard, I wonder, that old trope about the great reversal that takes place after high school? You know, the revenge of the nerds phenomenon? It's the idea that the qualities that set you up for being a somebody, one of the alphas in high school, might ironically land you as a catastrophic failure afterwards, and vice versa. That quiet, unpopular nerd sitting alone at the lunch table now might end up becoming the next Steve Jobs, or 10 years down the line, setting your salary. And I suppose the high school reunions uh, sometimes bear that cliché out, don't they? Or at least that's how the well-meaning uh, friends of mine in high school tried to cheer me up and encourage me as one of those unpopular nerds myself for those three miserable years until I dropped out. They may be getting the girls and flushing your head down the toilet now, they said, but you're going to get the last laugh, don't you worry. Of course, it doesn't always work out that way in real life. We don't always see the bully get his comeuppance, do we? But when he does, and when the little guy gets his day, it's pretty satisfying, isn't it? That's kind of how I feel about today's Genesis passage from this morning, which interestingly enough might just be the first time we ever see that trope appear in literature. And it has some fascinating and surprising insights for us and about our Christian life. So, three points for today. First, the battle for the inheritance. Second, the fulfillment of the inheritance. And finally, the sacrament of our inheritance. So first off is the battle for the inheritance. Our passage this morning introduces us to two very significant figures in the Scripture, Jacob and Esau, the twin rival siblings who duke it out from the womb. Now, they're one of many pairs of rival siblings in the Scripture, stretching all the way back to Cain and Abel and all the way forward even into the New Testament. But the specific way the text presents these two is revealing. Let's look. The first, it says, came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they named him Esau. In other words, this guy looks like a hairy animal, doesn't he? With his skin all red, like the color of Middle Eastern earth or dirt. And when he grew up, the text says, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Like the stereotypical high school quarterback jock, Esau is focused on two things, hunting down his meat and getting glory, and he was good at it. We'll also see later that he has a habit of collecting wives and concubines from among the Canaanite peoples around him, and that he, like Cain, has a capacity for murderous bouts of rage and bitter, vengeful resentment. And then, of course, we see him come in from the field, utterly famished with hunger. Apparently, he's just had an unsuccessful hunt, and he's totally blinded by his appetite. And so, he impulsively sells his birthright to his younger brother for nothing more than a pot of red, earth-colored stew. You know, as a boy, I imagine Esau would have grown up nestled, nestled in his grandpa Abraham's lap. 
hearing the story of Grandpa's heroic deeds of faithfulness and the precious covenant of God that he would someday inherit as the firstborn. Now, it seems shocking, doesn't it, that he would show such contempt for the promises of God, for his family legacy and inheritance. But the text gives us a key insight into his motivations. What does it say? I'm about to die, he says to his brother, of what use is a birthright to me? What secretly drives Esau is the fear of death. It's actually kind of a tragic picture, isn't it? All of his bravado, all of his insatiable fleshly cravings and appetites are emerging from that deep-seated insecurity and fear of death. It's actually something that we see in the high school bullies and mean girls too, isn't it? The thing which is, is driving their behavior, their aggression, and all of that is this deep-seated insecurity. Esau is what St. Paul might later call a carnally-minded man, literally in today's terms, a meathead with flesh on the mind. Now, let's look at what the text says about his younger brother Jacob. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which means supplanter or usurper. He's the schemer. When he grew up, he was a quiet man living in tents, the text says. So if Esau is the jock, well, Jacob is the nerd, the homebody, the mama's boy, who's focused on the inner life, that is, the life in tents. Jacob is cooking up killer plans and killer stews. And most of all, he's a patient opportunist, willing to bide his time and ready to trick his older brother out of that birthright as soon as the opportunity presents itself. And present itself, it does. Since his mind and desires are set on the promises of God made to his grandpa Abraham, Jacob is what St. Paul might call spiritually minded, if yet a little immature. You might have noticed that at this point in their lives, Jacob and Esau are almost caricatures more than they are real characters. They're like exaggerated mirror images of one another, like archetypes rather than fully rounded out human beings. But that should actually help us to see past the surface details of their lives and personalities to the deeper meaning of this story for us. Esau and Jacob, siblings locked from the womb in rivalry, are a picture of the lifelong struggle between the flesh and the spirit for supremacy within us. And they're locked in battle over the birthright, that is, the inheritance. Now, for some context, in the ancient world, a family's entire inheritance would pass from the father to the firstborn son when the father died, who would then be responsible for distributing the leftovers to his younger brothers. This was the first son's birthright. But again, it's important to remember that this family's inheritance wasn't just material possessions, although they were plentiful. It was the covenant of promise that God had made with Abraham, the means by which God was working to bring salvation and eternal life to the fallen world. 
This inheritance had passed first from their father Isaac, the child of promise, and was now destined to come down to one of them. This was the inheritance that Esau despised and Jacob laid hold of. But who is the true righteous seed of Abraham, the firstborn son of God and son of man, who will eventually inherit all the promises made to Abraham? It's Christ, isn't it? That's what brings us to our second point, the fulfillment of the inheritance. At his incarnation, Christ renews our human nature by uniting it to his divinity. In a way, you could say that he's reconciling those warring brothers throughout sacred history, the flesh and the spirit, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, together in himself. Christ atones for our sin by his own blood upon the cross. And then descending to the realm of the dead, he tramples down the gates of death, binds up the strong man, that is, the devil, and plunders his captives. Descending back to his heavenly throne, where he began in glory at the right hand of the Father, he receives the full inheritance of the kingdom of God. And then he begins to distribute the first installment of that inheritance to those whom, as Hebrews says, he is not ashamed to call his brethren. What is that inheritance? It's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The third person of the Holy Trinity, the Lord and giver of life, the bond of love between the Father and the Son. He is our inheritance, given that we might be sharers in the divine nature, in the ecstatic inner life of the Trinity. That's what we see taking place on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit falls upon the apostles gathered together in prayer in the upper room. St. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians that in Christ you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee, that is, the down payment or first installment of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of His glorious grace. So the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we enjoy even now as Christians, is that first installment of our future eternal inheritance in the age to come. But how could St. Paul say that about Gentile Ephesian Christians who weren't even present in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? And that's what brings us to our third point, the sacrament of our inheritance, confirmation. The way this sacrament of confirmation functions in our tradition is like a coming of age. It's a laying claim to the inheritance we were assigned at our baptism when we first became adopted sons of God through Christ and therefore heirs and co-heirs with Christ. And it is our own personal Pentecost, our way of participating in that event in sacred history where we, like the disciples gathered in the upper room, are empowered with that first installment of our inheritance and are sent out on mission to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world. It is, in short, the sacrament of Christian maturity. The outward invisible sign of the sacrament is the laying on of hands by a bishop, one of the direct successors of those apostles who were the first to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
You can picture him figuratively handing down this gift that he himself has received in a living chain all the way back to Jesus and the apostles. And the inward and spiritual grace is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us for discipleship that we might grow in Christian virtue and overcome vice and so become vessels of his grace for the world. That's what that word confirmation literally means in the Latin, to strengthen with, confirm. Think about the radical transformation that takes place in the apostles from before to after the Feast of Pentecost. They went from being terrified and timid, locked up in fear in their homes, to being bold and fearless in their proclamation and witness to the gospel and in their service and obedience to Christ. But this is important. Just before Christ ascended up to his throne of glory in heaven, what did he command his disciples to do? Wait. Wait there in the upper room until you receive power from on high. Don't try to go out in your own strength. It won't work until you receive the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So like Jacob, what do they do? They dwelt in tents, right? They gathered themselves together in that upper room in something like a quiet prayer retreat for 10 days. After all they had been through those past six weeks, I imagine they must have been meditating almost nonstop on their master's passion and precious death upon the cross, on his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. And all the things that the risen Jesus had taught them those past 40 days about the scriptures and how all of them pointed to himself as their fulfillment. And then, when the grace of the Holy Spirit finally does come upon them on the day of Pentecost, the shackles of the fear of death that had once held them, like Esau, so tightly bound and captive to sin and carnal-mindedness, were burnt away in the fire of the Holy Spirit's love. This is the fruit of Christ's redemptive work. As Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same human nature, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, like Esau, through fear, of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Friends, this story of Jacob and Esau is our story. Their sibling rivalry is what is happening inside of you and me even right now. And the stakes involved for us are just as high as they were for them. Now, I want us to look briefly at our epistle lesson for today. Because I believe St. Paul beautifully translates this story from Genesis into our own personal experience as Christians. Let's listen. For those who, like Esau, he says, live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who, like Jacob, live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh, like Esau, is hostile to God. 
It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you all are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. I get that this might sound like a bit of a stretch, like I'm doing a little bit of interpretive gymnastics here. I really don't think that's the case. Look what St. Paul writes to us in another letter. See to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God, that no one be immoral or irreligious like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. It's all there. Now let me ask you, in our inner battle, who do you think has the birthright by default? Who is the default leader in your soul? Who has the default access to that leadership position? Jacob or Esau? Carnal-mindedness or spiritual-mindedness? The jock or the nerd? It's Esau, isn't it? Just like in Genesis. And arguably, in our present age, the seductions and distractions of the world luring us into the web of worldly thoughts and desires and affections and ambitions has never been stronger or so all-pervasive. It's everywhere. It's even in your pockets. And to top it off, our inner Esau is strong. He's buff. He works out every day. He's powered by that deep-rooted primal instinct of the fear of death, which is not easily displaced. He's the meat-headed high school quarterback, and our inner Jacob is the scrawny dweeb. If we try to oppose him and his demands head on, if we just try to just stop thinking carnally-minded, cold turkey, as it were, what do you think will happen? It's not going to be pretty, is it? He's going to pummel us into submission, give us a swirly, and make us regret ever trying. So what can we do? We will need to imitate Jacob, that patient and crafty schemer, won't we? There were three traits that we see in this passage that allow him to get the upper hand over his brother. First of all is his focus on the inner life, and then his craftiness, and finally his patience. So we need, first of all, like Jacob, to intentionally develop our inner life, that dwelling intense, as the Scripture puts it, that is, entering into our prayer closet, like Jesus would say, recalling or recollecting ourselves and our attention from our many excursions and worldly cares and occupations, and then learning to stand in the presence of God in silence. We have to acknowledge that that's an uncomfortable place for many of us, and that's oftentimes why we go to distractions in the first place. We have to learn how to appreciate silence in the presence of God. And once inside that inner tent, we must learn to wait with earnest expectation upon the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like the apostles did in the upper room. And like them, meditating in that 10-day retreat, we too should take time to meditate upon Christ in the Scriptures, upon the love poured out for us on the cross, upon the faith that is so, uh, made so sure by the resurrection, upon the hope that is laid up for us in His ascension, until we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that first installment of our inheritance. And the Spirit 
working secretly in our hearts, will gradually release us from that fear of death and captivity to sin and carnal-mindedness that it produces. And we need, secondly, to be crafty like Jacob. Crafty. As Jesus says, be wise as serpents and simple as doves. So when we don't have time to enter into our prayer closets or when life's legitimate demands pull us away from the memory of God, as they often do, wherever we are, we can seize the opportunity to recollect ourselves, to remember God, to pray and call upon the name of Jesus, to enter into the inner closet of our heart, even in public, and to renew our meditation or our prayer or conversation with God. If we are crafty opportunists like Jacob, we can always find a way. And finally, we have to be patient and intentional like Jacob was. As St. Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that is, the works of Esau, you will live. This is what the church tradition calls mortification, Literally, putting to death the carnal attachments and fleshly appetites of Esau. Through disciplines, the disciplines of fasting, prayer, almsgiving, and obedient service. As St. Paul writes, make no provision for the flesh and for its desires. Until, that is, your inner Esau, returning famished from an unsuccessful hunt, from not finding any sustenance in outer distractions and occupations, willingly hands over the birthright, the supremacy, without a fight. Now, there's one last thing we have to remember, that the flesh, which Esau represents, is not evil. God made us a body-soul unity in the beginning and called that creation very good. The flesh, when it is properly disciplined and learns to voluntarily submit to the aims of the Spirit, is actually meant to be gloriously transfigured with the grace of God. What's dangerous is when Esau has possession of the birthright, when he is the one steering the ship, calling the shots, and degrading our spirit with carnal-mindedness. And if he's at the helm long enough, we can become so blind, like brute beasts, that we no longer value the inheritance that Christ died to give us that we treat it with contempt and sell out for a worthless bowl of stew. Friends, Christ is calling us to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of us, to patiently fan into glorious flame the gift of our inheritance that is ours by virtue of the sacrament of confirmation. So be of good cheer, my fellow nerds. We may yet have our day. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, who is vouchsafed to regenerate us, thy servants, by water and the Holy Spirit, and has given unto us the forgiveness of all our sins at baptism, strengthen us, we beseech thee, O Lord, with the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, and daily increase in us thy manifold gifts of grace, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and ghostly strength, the spirit of knowledge and true godliness, and fill us, O Lord, with the spirit of thy holy fear, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. 
To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. 